again uh, at this conference, and I think that we're all enriched uh, by it, uh, really, really from start to finish, uh, hearing uh, uh, Arthur Schlesinger uh, with the challenges from uh, Professors McKinnon and Heffernan, or uh, Professor Veroli's challenge to uh, Professor Weiler at the end of his uh, remarks. Uh, uh, Michael Pakalik and Eddie Glode uh, engaging in genuine disagreement uh, with Bill Galston, Professor Eisgruber and Professor Bradley, uh, Professor Roger Smith and Professor Finnis, uh, Professor Macedo and Professor uh, Glendon. This is terrific. I mean, it's what we're in this game for, not simply for, of course, its entertainment value, although I think it is richly entertaining uh, <laughs> when you have really smart people really disagreeing and actually uh, reaching disagreement, but also for the substantive uh, enlightenment uh, that, uh, that uh, is available to us uh, when uh, smart people provide for us the best arguments on competing sides of a question. So this has been absolutely terrific, uh, and I thank all of our speakers for, uh, for making it uh, happen. I also thank our wonderful audience. It's been a terrific turnout from uh, start to finish. Uh, particularly, it's gratifying to me to see so many students here, especially given that uh, the break has begun. You could be out of here. You could be elsewhere, uh, but you stayed, and uh, I think that's a, a wonderful thing. Well, now I have the greatest pleasure of all, and I'm not going to take a lot of time in doing it. Uh, you have uh, heard all about him uh, through these days. Uh, it was his book and his thought that stimulated uh, this conference. I have always said uh, he will be the one who is remembered when the rest of us uh, are gone. Uh, I give you the founder of the feast, Father Richard John Newhouse. Thank you, Robbie, for that very, very generous introduction. Thank you for pulling together this conference and for all that you do here at the Madison program and uh, for your colleagues and for Chris Wolfe. It's a very, uh, how long am I supposed to have? Who knows? <laughs> Try to keep it to half an hour, okay. Um, it's very gratifying, of course, to have uh, a book that one wrote, it seems to me, in my youth, um, still discussed and debated, and perhaps to have played some small part in um, framing a question. I often think that with books that gain a great deal of attention, in this case perhaps inordinate attention, that if you ask why was that particular book so seized upon, I think the reason often is, and probably is in the case of the Naked Public Square, not because it had that much originality of insight or argument, but because it came at a time in which people knew that something was going wrong or had gone radically wrong, and it kind of pulled together and articulated um, discontents and intuitions uh, that uh, had not been put together in quite that way. 
The Naked Public Square, the title itself, of course, has been both a blessing and a burden, and as uh, a number of people have pointed out, it's the kind of title that people feel once they got the title down, they got the argument down, and uh, therefore it's not necessary to enter into the details of the logic behind it. Are there people, and publicly uh, influential forces in our society that really do want, quite literally, a naked public square? And the answer is uh, yes. Um, the other day, someone brought to my attention a major project being launched by the American Civil Liberties Union called the Free Speech Project. And they have very impressive programming on this, including on their website. And the opening paragraph of uh, the presentation of this project reads, quote, it is probably no accident that freedom of speech is the first freedom mentioned in the First Amendment, <laughs> colon. And then they quote the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law, dot, 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 <laughs> <laughs> abridging the freedom of speech. <laughs> Remarkable for its sheer audacity. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've had to say over the years, and I'm very, very grateful for all of the scintillating and insightful comments that have been made here, and I can touch but on a few of them, and no doubt in a manner that is not adequate to... Um, the questions that have been raised. Again and again, I've had to say that people ask, well, what's the alternative to the naked public square? And, of course, people get hung up in the metaphor of naked or clothed or whatever. Or they'll say, um, well, the alternative to the naked public square is the rather frightening prospect of the sacred public square, to which I've had to say again and again that no, no, no. The alternative to the naked public square is the civil public square, the democratic public square, the public square in which politics is vibrantly exercised. The book is not an argument for religion or for a greater public role for religion. It is an argument for the revitalization of politics, and particularly democratic politics, and particularly the American experiment, as the founders never hesitated to call this, an experiment. And experiments, by definition, whether in a laboratory or whether in the realm of politics, experiments can succeed or experiments can fail. 
And that's why it's still important, and I think will always be important, to speak of America and American constitutional democracy as an experiment. What Lincoln meant when at Gettysburg he spoke so eloquently about whether a nation so dedicated, so consecrated, whether something so audaciously undertaken can be sustained. That is the question. The civil public square is one within which authentic politics takes place. And if one says, someone said, I think it was yesterday, well, we can't define religion and we can't define politics. I think we can define politics, or at least I would propose an essentially Aristotelian definition. What is politics? Politics is free persons deliberating the question, how ought we to order our life together? That's what politics is. In its very nature, a moral enterprise, as is signaled by the word ought. All of the significant vocabulary of politics is a moral vocabulary. What is fair, what is unfair, what is just, what is unjust, what serves the common good, disserves the common good, etc. How ought we to order our life together? That is the, the political question. It is not simply a matter of historical happenstance that in the American experiment, the sources from which one draws answers to the ought question are very historically specifiable, particularistic, the Judeo-Christian, and I do think Judeo-Christian is an appropriate phrase and not simply a term of politeness toward Jews, that it is from this source that most of the founders understood, and even whether or not some of them did understand it, that in fact they were drawing. As indeed I would suggest, and I'll come back to this, as much as I appreciated Walter McDougall's kind words, I don't think it's two pillars of the Judeo-Christian tradition and the, quote, secular enlightenment. The secular enlightenment is inexplicable apart from the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is of a piece with it. This is what they drew from. An interesting question raised right toward the end. Can an atheist be a good citizen? I once wrote... Uh, article precisely by that title, which received a good deal of um, uh, both positive and mainly negative uh, response. Um, and of course, if one asks, can an atheist be a virtuous person, be a good citizen in the sense of someone who contributes to the common good, even contributes uh, helpfully to the question of how ought we order our life together? and exhibits the virtues appropriate to being a good citizen? The answer in all those scores is, of course, yes. An atheist can be a good citizen. But if one means that something more is required of a good citizen, that a good citizen is able to explain and to communicate, especially to the next generation, 
the nature of the experiment of which he or she is part. Then within the context of the American experiment, the answer is no, an atheist cannot be a good citizen if that ability to explain and transmit the nature of the experiment is part of the definition of good citizenship. It is not, and I'm, I'm going to be moving from subject to subject, I'm afraid, rather randomly, because I've been listening randomly and things have been presented somewhat randomly. It is not possible, as it is not possible, to talk about the two pillars of the secular enlightenment and the um, Judeo-Christian tradition. It is not, I think, helpful to speak about civil religion. And Robert Bella, who, as uh, was pointed out in 1967 and 68, generated a, a very, very interesting uh, discussion uh, of this. Um, we've disagreed on this for quite a while, and I expect we'll continue to. There is a civil and political appropriation of the Judeo-Christian moral and religious tradition in the United States, which some people call a civil religion. But Americans are not looking for another religion. They already have, or at least they think they have, a religion. The civil religion is a necessary accommodation in order to avoid certain intra, mainly intra-Christian, disputes which, of course, was also the purpose of the no-establishment provision in the First Amendment, that, as you well know, it was necessary for the federal government to give assurances to the states that the national or federal government would not interfere with the establishments that, in, in fact, existed in six of the 13 States. Um, so also the language of civil religion has been used by some to denature, if you will, to dilute and to make more generally acceptable uh, a religious affirmation in public that skirts the intra, mainly intra-Christian disputes that existed then and exists to this day. But the language of civil religion, which Walter McDougall well summarized in terms of uh, also providential guidance, national destiny, all of which are themes that, again, are most eloquently and most profoundly in our tradition uh, articulated by Abraham Lincoln, who I think it's... Um, Quaker by the name of Trueblood who called uh, Lincoln America's greatest theologian. And I think there's a great deal of truth in that. The greatest theologian, certainly the most profound thinker about the interaction between providential purpose and the American experiment. Um, but this does not constitute a civil religion. Um, it constitutes one public expression and one might say public use, and then one might a bit more pejoratively say public exploitation and political exploitation 
of the essentially Judeo-Christian, overwhelmingly Christian, of course, uh, belief system embraced by the American people, overwhelmingly, by 90% of them or so, who claim that they are Christian in one way or another. Interestingly enough, 94% believe in the virgin birth. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, the difficulty in speaking about a civil religion is, of course, that a civil religion, were it really a religion, which is to say, from religare, that which binds us together, that which drives to the commanding truths, the deepest, most obliging truths that constitute your most comprehensive and binding understanding of reality. If that's what is meant by religion, and we speak about a civil religion, almost by definition, a civil religion is going to be a form of idolatry. Uh, it's going to be the merger, the convergence, the confusion of national identity with providential purpose. And this, of course, is what has happened again and again in American life. There is an inevitable intersection and interaction it is, uh, as several people have pointed out, I think George McKenna very effectively in response to uh, Arthur Schlesinger, um, it is not simply George W. Bush. It goes throughout our presidential tradition, uh, usually articulated in a fumbling and rather awkward way, which is also not unique to the present incumbent, uh, that there is such an intersection. And in a sense, that's necessary. It's necessary when it posits, as the First Amendment, I think, implicitly does posit, the self-limiting statement of the government that it is not itself the final sovereign, that there is a sovereignty to which, in its very constitutional order, the American experiment points the definition of the sovereignty, filling in the details as to what is meant by the ultimate sovereignty, is for the people exercising the purpose of the religion clause of the First Amendment. It is for the people to fill in the blanks, to fill in the details. And most of them have no doubt that what they mean when we say, for example, under God, refers to the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the government does not confess and should not confess that we are a nation under God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nor, contra the efforts in the 19th century and still up into the 20th century, efforts by some to pass a Christian amendment that would say this is a Christian nation. Why do I think that would be unwise? Would it be permitted? Is it permissible? Is it constitutionally permissible? I would say, of course it is. The Constitution places no restrictions whatsoever on what the people do or say or believe religiously. All the restrictions of the First Amendment, and particularly of the Religion Clause, are placed upon the government not upon religion. Religion is perfectly free to make an argument that we ought to establish ourselves as a theocracy of some sort or another. And there are some Christian leaders who at times seem to be suggesting that. 
They're perfectly free and protected in their constitutional right to do it. What the argument against having a statement that we are a nation, for example, under God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is that it entangles the government, expanding the reach of the government into areas in which it has no competence, in which it has no competence in both meanings of the term, no ability and no authority. And inevitably, that's going to be very bad for religion. But civil religion, I am suggesting, is not, is a term to be used with great care. Rather, we see the public, necessarily public character of the claims of Judeo-Christian religion, of biblical religion, let's use that word, in their interaction with the essentially political task of deliberating and deciding the question, how ought we to order our life together? There is a change in the last 20 years, despite the little ACLU free speech thing I just read, which is now more marginal. 20 years ago, fewer people would have laughed at that. Fewer people would have said, oh, ACLU, give me a break, you know. Uh, there is a change, a growing awareness of the inescapability of the connections being effectively made, also in terms of electoral politics, but not chiefly there, at every dimension of our society, between biblical religion, its faith and its practice and its belief system, and what kind of society we're going to be the asking of the political question, how ought we to order our life together. There is a difference in the last 20 years. And I'd say, all in all, it is uh, moving in the right direction in one sense, in that it is no longer the case, at least not so uniformly the case, whether in the courts or in the academy or in other places. It is no longer the case that it is assumed that the position of skepticism or agnosticism or atheism is the default position. Uh, Professor Joseph Weiler's very interesting discussion yesterday of that assumption being so solidly entrenched in the European Union and it's thinking about whether or not it's going to acknowledge a religious or Christian component in its own identity. Uh, that, I think, here in the United States is no longer as much the case as it was 20 years ago. The assumption that this is a secular society and a secular government in a secular society, with secular meaning what? Secular meaning exclusive of other ways of understanding the world. Obviously, biblical religion is very secular. The seculum is simply the world at hand, and it is biblical faith that God looks to the world of his own creation and says, behold, it is very good, so that those who are obedient to God are to attend to the world and to the right ordering of the world. So Christianity is profoundly secular, as it is profoundly humanistic. You, you can't get more humanistic than to claim that God became a human being. This is uh, about as radically humanistic as you can be. So the word secular and the word hu humanistic, 
both of which have frequently been used in our discussions to distinguish or even to oppose the religious, are both, I think, uh, misused. What we're speaking about is an exclusive secularism or an exclusive humanism, a secularism that excludes a fuller and richer understanding of how to attend to the saculum, to the present world, especially if that richer tradition is tainted by religion, and to exclude that, of course, on the grounds of the separation of church and state at the legal level. Similarly, exclusive humanism is that which excludes from the consideration of what it means to be human, what it means in uh, John Finnis's favorite term, to flourish, for the humanum to flourish, uh, to exclude from that the richer and more profound understandings of the humanum which are born by and provided by and practiced in biblical religion. The great distinction between what is private and what is public, the idea that religion is purely a private thing. Yesterday, several times, a passage was quoted from the book, which if I had to write it over again, I would make more clear, in which I say that it is necessary to translate in the public square from revelation or convictions that are private in character. By that I meant private revelations, not that revelation is private. Biblical revelation could not be more public. It is emphatically public. The entirety of what we call the salvation history of God's working in time is very, very public. It is up front, as public as uh, the contest between a governor in Judea and as public as a crucifixion and as a resurrection and as a church is public. But what I meant to say is that you cannot come in and hear... Uh, Bill Galston was finding great similarities and to him surprising similarities between myself and John Rawls. Well, at, at a limited level, yes. I mean, John Rawls made an enormous contribution. I would assume that all of us in this room would agree on this, How, whatever our disagreements with Rawls' theory, that he uh, made an enormous contribution to reviving uh, political theory and political philosophy uh, in a time in which those questions were in wide, wide uh, sectors of our intellectual and academic life considered uh, passé. And for that, I think we are all greatly indebted uh, to John Rawls. But his notion of what counts as public reason is to be faulted precisely because it so narrowly and arbitrarily tries to set the boundaries of what is to be permitted to the public square. And in addition to all the points that John Finnis and others have made here with regard to the Rawls theory, it smuggles into our minds and practices a notion of a, by arguing against comprehensive accounts of reality and that they cannot be admitted, especially if they are in somehow connected with religious authority or claims to revelation, it smuggles into the public square something that never names its own name, that dare not speak its own name, and that is a comprehensive account of liberalism. A comprehensive account of liberalism 
that suggests that without reference to this richer tradition, and particularly to a richer tradition touched by and informed by transcendent authority, that without reference to that, somehow you have an adequate uh, system of reference for carrying on politics, namely the deliberation of the question of how ought we to order our life together. And I think this is simply false. Comprehensive liberalism is simply a form of smuggled exclusion, a smuggled-in system of exclusion, which does not fess up to its own belief system, to its own belief system having to do with, most crucially, yes, relativism, if one wants to use that word, nihilism, if one wants to use a more precise word, a word that basically suggests that whatever meanings are to be engaged in deliberating the ought question, they are our meanings, they are our constructions, and that our deliberations are basically contestations, not robust contestation of argument, as was suggested earlier, but contestations of power, essentially, of power relationships. And it is this way of thinking that has played such a debilitating effect in undermining both the role of religiously informed public discourse in response to the ought question of political discourse, and it has also undermined any confidence in the ability of human beings to achieve agreements and disagreements in a common quest for and accessible uh, uh, capacity to ascertain truth. And so, for example, uh, the private-public thing. It's, it's um, yesterday, uh, Bill Galston again used this uh, illustration of the religious-secular, using that language about which I've said enough in terms of its inadequacy, and he cited the Union of Orthodox Rabbis on the question of cloning. And then you recall Michael very incisively intervened and ask Bill, well, do you, do you think it is true what the rabbinical tradition is saying about the development of the embryo, etc.? And that is exactly the right question. Is it true? Is there such a thing as truth in the sense that we all have a capacity, a God-given capacity, if you will? We are hardwired to be able to discern truth and to be able to understand when it is that things that we discern to be true are indeed in agreement with or disagreement with the interlocutor in the deliberation of the political question, how ought we to order our life together? Is it true? Um, Rabbi Alan Middleman, when we had a little exchange in this uh, issue of First Things, in the November issue, on the 20th anniversary of um, the Naked Public Square, my friend Alan Middleman went back and he said, and when he read it again 20 years later, that he was impressed by, more than when he first read it, impressed by how theological 
is the argument. And um, I think that's right. I think it is, it was intended more as a theological argument than most readers read it as being. Comprehensive liberalism of its very, in its various forms wants to suggest that there is only one table at which we all sit and that this one table is in a sense the polis, the city. And the only question is what are the table manners in terms of who gets to speak when and who gets to sit at the best part of the table and who's under the salt and so forth and so on. But the theological caveat here, which is ever so much more than a caveat, is that I think for the believing Jew and for the believing Christian, and we'll have to see one of the great dramas of this century is the unfolding of whether this is true for Muslims. But for the Jew and the Christian, there's not simply one table. There's another table. In Christian terms, it is the Eucharistic table. It is the table of another politics, of a true politics, of an authentically new politics, of the politics, of course, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so for the Christian engaged in these questions, it is not at all a source of discomfort, but rather is to be naturally expected that there are different discourses appropriate to the different tables. And there is, I think, an unapologetic awareness that the second table, the altar, the Eucharistic table, is the table of prior and higher allegiance. One of the difficulties with the language of civil religion in the United States under the clear Protestant hegemony that was very secure and very stably in place until the end of the Second World War. One of the difficulties with it is that Protestantism generally did not have a clear understanding of another place, did not have in theological terms, an ecclesiology of great density. And so there was a very powerful propensity, frequently dangerously exhibited, of conflating America with the church, that the church became, not simply in terms of the high metaphor of John Winthrop coming in with the pilgrims, but in terms of practical political discourse, America became a new Israel and the new Israel extended into the life of the church. And so that if you look at left and right in Protestantism today in terms of the religio-cultural-political alignments, whether it be evangelical fundamentalist slash evangelical Protestantism on the one hand or the liberal, mainline, sideline Protestantism on the other. Both of them have simply attached an a properly, what is a properly an ecclesiological hope, a hope for a people of God in the American experiment itself. 
And this, what on every dollar bill is called the Novus Order Seclorum, this new order for the ages, really takes on this kind of um, command for adherence with the tonalities of eternal consequences, which is very, very dangerous and which has led to some of the unhappier aspects of notions such as American Manifest Destiny. But it has, in contemporary political and public life, it has both conservative and liberal left and right uh, versions. One of the reasons that Catholicism was for a very, very long time and still is to a very large extent viewed as un-American, viewed as very suspect and not really um, compatible with the American experiment is that it posited an ecclesiology, namely a universal church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, in uh, which ecclesiology there is no serious entanglement with the American experiment, no debt to the American experiment, no dependence upon the American experiment, and therefore Catholics were, in a very understandable way, understood for years and years as suspect citizens of being suspected of having a dual allegiance. And of course, the suspicion is exactly right and thoroughly justified for there is no doubt. And I would suggest that this is true for all Christians, although the ecclesiological form is not as developed outside the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, to take a much uh, a example of much lesser consequence in American history. But the Catholic Church rightly viewed as suspect because it posits an alternative, a prior, and a higher allegiance but which, as Father John Courtney Murray, whose name has been mentioned here several times, which higher allegiance may be the salvation, if you will, at least in political temporal terms, the salvation of the American experiment. Because it is from that community of an unapologetically higher allegiance that a language and a practice and a sensibility can be cultivated for filling in what is meant when one says that this is, for instance, a nation under God. What is meant when the founders said, and could take ever so much more for granted as they could, morally, culturally, religiously, than we can today, when they spoke about a nature and nature's God, about a creator who endows us with certain rights, there was an understanding in place that the universe was so constructed that the political enterprises, even such as this most singular experiment, were within a cosmos of moral accountability to truth and to the source of truth, which is indicated by Judeo-Christian biblical religion to reconstitute the notion, the Augustinian notion of two cities, of a city of man dealing with the temporal affairs with all the limits that are involved there, but also the high dignity of being able to discern truth, including moral truth there, 
and to be able to do the honor to your fellow citizen of believing that he or she is capable of exploring together what really may be the truth about how we ought to order our life together, not simply what we may find convenient, not simply the arrangements we may have to adjust ourselves to or the accommodations we make in order to muddle through, but to believe as we increasingly are being forced in this society to believe that there is a truth about things such as what constitutes the human. In many ways, it may be the case that in the purposes of God far beyond our sure discernment, that the Roe versus Wade notorious infamous decision of an unlimited abortion license has forced into public debate a question for which this constitutional order was never wired. We are suffering from a moral